0: Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke, if you would. Chapter 17, 1 through 4. As we begin a new chapter in our journey with Jesus as He makes His way to his divine appointment at the cross, Calvary. Titled this morning is Dangerous Harbors, Dangerous Harbors. Now, typically, when you think of harbors, you usually conjure up images of inlets where boats and ships access the ocean, uh, bringing goods and services and travelers to and from other places. Harbors are typically beautiful spots that capture nature's at its best. Don and I had the opportunity to go on a cruise uh, last month or so. We went to um, Avalon there to um, Catalina. Thank you. That just lost my mind on that one. Uh, and, and I've seen pictures, but I've never been there. And just that, that's just a beautiful, beautiful harbor there. However, winds and waves can take these beautiful spots and make them very, very dangerous to navigate. We've all seen images of harbors where boats are turn, uh, uh, torn apart and turned over and blown out of the water due to the hurricanes and floodings. Some harbors may look pristine only to even hide objects that prove dangerous to boats that are underneath the water that can't be seen. Another type of harbor that we usually think of or view as dangerous are nations that harbor those who wish to harm others or to advocate Rebellion Places like Iran and Afghanistan, Somalia, are just a few that give protection and place to train and to hide different types of Islamic groups and others that seek the demise of either their own people and overthrow a rebellion or even the demise of the United States. Yet today, I want you to consider one of the most dangerous harbors of all. The most dangerous harbor of all is the human heart. particularly I'm talking about today is your heart. The heart that harbors unforgiveness, harbors bitterness, resentment, and anger. A heart that desires revenge and dreams of retaliation against those that have hurt them, disagree with them, or committed some other type of slight. We're talking about your heart this morning. Is it a dangerous harbor? In today's passage, Luke pauses from recording the parables of Christ, and he inserts several practical warnings and instructions of Jesus to his disciples. That at a first, that seems kind of out of place, but we're going to look at those over the next few weeks. In Luke chapter 17, let's read the first two verses silently with me as I read aloud. Where Jesus said to his disciples, "Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come." It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were to be cast into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones to send father. This is a very, very stern warning to believers. He's speaking to us. This is not the Pharisees. This is not done to unbelievers, but this is a warning given to those that have denied themselves, picked up their cross, and now are following Christ. Those who profess to have a new heart. So give us wisdom to sermon, for he's speaking straight to us this morning, 2,000 years apart, but still the Spirit takes the scriptural arrows and aims it right at us. And Father, I pray that it would go deep, and Father, that it would bear fruit in our lives as we respond to the Holy Spirit's work, as we ask the question, are we a dangerous harbour? Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I thank you for Luke's work in recording these events, giving us an orally account, the preservation that has taken place over all this time so that we may stand confident of Jesus, his ministry, and his teachings. In your name we pray. Amen. Jesus here makes a statement that has been true since Adam rebelled against God in the garden. Each and every one of us can contest that temptation to sin are not only sure to come, but that the frequency and the strength of these temptations seem to increase even as we grow more and more in Christ. And by the way, let me say that your sensitivity to sin is actually a sign that you are becoming more and more like Christ and freer from your sin. We're not going to get much in detail, but that's what Paul says. Life is difficult, especially for Christians. The followers of Christ. It is a grave error to teach that once someone accepts Christ, that their life will become easier. That every day will be like Friday. That all your troubles will just melt away. That is the false gospel of those who preach that God will only bring you wealth and health and prosperity if you would only give him more. Trust him more. Now the Christian life demands that one endures suffering. Trusting that God will one day bring that comfort and will one day release us and give us relief from that suffering. And he uses that for his glory and good. So temptation to me, as I'm sharing here this with you, this is one of the things, the difficulties in life that you and I will face. Now, to help us understand these difficulties, I want to consider the different types of problems we'll face in life. I've shared this with you before, four enemies that we face, four things. When you see in the Bible, temptations, that's a word that means different things. So first are the word that you and I just know as temptations. These are temptations that are designed by Satan to draw us away from God and destroy our character. We see this at the fall, Adam and Eve. Satan tempts Eve, he, tapes, he, t- he says, I want to draw you away from God, destroy your character. He offers her, offers her something much more, but that's temptation. That's something that in which Satan is trying to destroy your character. Many of you are under, the. Uh, we face this each and every day. The second one is that of trials. Trials are designed by God to draw us closer to him and to build our character. Now, what's interesting is that when, when there's something that's a temptation and a circumstance uh, in your life, those at many times are both a temptation and a trial at the same time. See, God was trying to draw Eve closer to himself while Satan was trying to draw her away. And so that's what's always happening in your life. That's why I said there's no temptation that can overtake you. Why? Because God is meaning it for a trial to strengthen you. And so we need to understand that. Now, the third one, is that of troubles? Troubles are usually, but not always, consequences of our own sinful choices. Okay, David and, and Gis- Bathsheba. These are troubles when they lost their child, when when they did all these things. These were troubles of their own making. It's the consequences that you have. You and I, many times, this is what we have. We may have financial problems, relational problems, work problems, because of troubles of our own making. It's, it's just us causing trouble. It's our, our decisions that are leading us to this. in our passage today, when we see that word temptation, Jesus is warning his disciples of the fourth enemy that you and I will face. And that is that of trespasses, trespasses. And trespasses are hurts caused by sins of others. We think of that when we trespass against someone, we trespass on someone's yard. You know, we think of that word. It's doing something against someone else. In this, and this is what he wants us, we think of Saul trying to kill David. There's, that was kind of a little bit of all four of them going on, but he's, he's trying to cause hurt. The phrase temptation to sin refers to one person being a stumbling block, an obstacle, an offense, something that causes someone else to sin as in our kids corner it's tommy taking the ball away from johnny he's causing a trespass he's hurting someone else's feelings it literally means the word trespasses there in the greek literally means a trap or a bait stick in a trap i give you just a picture of this many of us can remember these things right it's a snare and Lando was building one of these uh, last month or something like that. He was trying to catch one of the birds in our yard and he was putting all sorts of different things in the trap. That word actually means like the carrot or the cheese or something that you would put inside that trap. You're trying to cause them to come in so you can trap them. That's actually what the Greek word there Means And that's what Jesus is using. So this is the picture is he's saying he's warning those. Whoa, it's dreadful to those who would develop or design such a trap that would entice someone else to come in. So it means to design a trap or a temptation or allure someone or to entice someone to you to cause someone else to fall. Jesus is describing those who seek to entice others to sins, those who purposely tempt others to join them in rebellion against their creator. Paul warns Timothy to among them, speaking of in the church. He says, among those in the church are those who creep in the households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions. He warns in the second letter that there are false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, he says, they will exploit you with false words. So there is a warning is be careful of those who preach and teach because many of them are causing trespasses. They're trying to lure and entice someone else to join in their sin. He goes on to describe them as having eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, they entice unsteady souls they have hearts trained in greed they are accursed children he goes on to say they are waterless springs in other words you go to a spring and you think oh here is here is good water here is something that that you expect that you anticipate but you go and find out that it's a dry waterbed. there is no relief there is no comfort there there are mists that are driven by a storm They speak loud boast of folly. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. It's causing someone to trespass and sin. Jesus is warning his disciples that to entrap one into sin brings condemnation. Peter writes of those false Christians. He says, they bring upon themselves swift destruction and that for them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. We spoke of that last week in Lazarus and the rich man of hell. In verse two, for those who do this, he paints a vivid word picture to get his point across. Look at verse two again. He says, it would be better for that person who trespasses against someone If a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. A millstone is a stone or a boulder used to grind or pulverize and to crush grain to make flour. You see this here on the screen. A millstone was so heavy that it was typically turned by a beast of burden. There's several different sizes of what a millstone might look like. This brings up images of movies and fiction books about the mafia killing snitches with concrete boots or someone getting rid of a body by filling the bag with rocks to make it sink deep in the water so that they can never be found. Jesus is saying it is better that one of those stones be wrapped around your neck and to be cast into the water. He's saying that it's better to drown slowly and that that would be more acceptable To the offender than facing the very wrath of God. This is a stern warning to those who would entice others, who would cause others, who would who would say, Come and follow me into sin. The phrase, cause one of these little ones to sin in this reference, again, that word means to be a stumbling block to someone. Who is either small in size. In some instances, he uses it of children. But it also means small in quantity or number or figuratively someone in dignity. But in really, in essence, what it's coming to here, it's talking about someone who is weak, a weakness in another, someone who is prone to fall to that temptation. And that's what people are. That's what a prey does, right? They, they look for someone. That's why we use that for that phrase that, that many people don't like is, is grooming for children. They're looking for those that are weak. They're looking for someone who's a Christian who's weak, maybe who's new. And it says, no, you can do this. You can join me in this. sin. it's okay. You have liberty to do this in Christ. The point is simple. Do not cause someone to stumble into sin. Do not tempt someone to sin. Do not lead someone to go against their conscience, especially if their conscience is informed by Scripture. Now, I just want to give you a very simple here in Romans chapter 14, 19 through 21. Look at Paul is writing to the church. And they're struggling because there are new Christians there. And so many of them in those days, you would eat food and almost all food, whether you went out and bought it, or you went out to eat, it was sacrificed to idols, and many are saying, "Well, we can't eat that food." New Christians say, "What should I do?" Or some would say, "Well, I, I, I'm, I'm a Jew, and, and I now believe in Jesus, but I still can't eat pork." Well, Paul says, "So then, let us not pursue, or so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding." By the way, if you can just get that tattooed on your arm, okay, that 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 will work. If you're going to get a tattoo, as I say, get that one. Whatever you do, it should make for peace. It for make for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the very work of God. I've added a word there, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, right? But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. This is just one example. In other words, if this person believes that he should not eat pork, don't force him to eat pork. But on the other way, if he believes that eating pork is okay, don't make him stumble by telling that he is sinning in doing so. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now, you could take this in any way and put this not in meat. We can put this in there and put it in there. Should someone someone, uh, participate in same-sex relationships? There are churches and pastors and Christians and even publications that are now saying, yes, that is okay. Well, I know you struggle with it. I know the Bible says it, but it's okay. You now can do this. These are the things that we're struggling. They're enticing others to break their conscience. Even with those who struggle with same-sex attraction, they say, I know that I struggle with that, but I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to, 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 um, to, uh, to go forth and do it. However, we have pastors and churches says, no, go ahead. So you can bring this into anything. Now, take your Bibles and turn to Colossians 3. Because, of course, if you're listening to me, you're saying, this isn't really speaking to me today. You're sitting here this morning, you're justifying yourself and say, wow, Rob is finally talking about someone else's sin. How refreshing. You may be sitting there and saying, oh, I'm innocent of such behavior. I never cause anyone to snare or to sin. I never put a snare out for someone. I never bait anyone into sin. However, I believe that if we are honest, we have much to confess and to repent regarding this warning. I think you should be with me in Colossians chapter 3. Again, I would encourage you to bring your Bibles. If you don't have one, let us know. We'd love to give you one. But look at verse 18. knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your word. And you may want to underline this next line. You are serving the Lord Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ. and all that you do, you're serving the Lord. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So let me ask you, as just reading this, and you're thinking you can justify yourself that you do not You are not a snare. You are not enticing. Let me ask you this. How often have we as husbands been guilty of causing our wives to sin by not loving them as Christ has called us to do? Harsh word. Ignoring them. Not meeting their needs. How often has we as wives been guilty of causing our husbands to sin by not submitting to to them as the church submits to Christ recognizing a leadership that God has given them. Now submitting, we're not talking about someone who has to do something that everyone says, but it's one who, who lovingly comes alongside and helps another in what they're trying to do. How often as we as parents have exasperated and discouraged our children by our inconsistency and lack of involvement in their lives? How often have we as employers and employees disregarded our fellow co-workers and bosses due to our selfish attitudes and our lack of work ethic? See, I believe many of us have been harboring those things, or we've been ones who have have been enticing others into anger, into bitterness, into resentment. This sin is not just in the big sins that you and I think of, but it's also in the small ones that many times we may not notice. It's not just in sins of commission, things that we do, but it's also in the sins of omission when we fail to follow the word of God and cause someone to stumble in their faith. It's not following through on our word or our promises. Jesus is not just not warning about uh, seducing someone in adultery or murder or theft. It is this, it is the cold shoulder that one spouse gives to another or one person gives to another. It's the rolling of the eyes. It's the obvious body language that entices others to respond in anger or in unloving ways. It's how we respond to others when we're tired, exhausted, frustrated, and troubled that could cause someone else to react outside of the faith. I believe when we consider these words that we recognize that our self-justification falls on deaf ears. We are not innocent of being a snare and enticing others of trespasses. It's knowing how to push someone's buttons and then doing so with delight to get what you want. It's a manipulation. In verse 3, Jesus simply warns that to escape this condemnation, damnation, we are to pay attention to yourselves. Underline that, circle that, highlight it, whatever you might be doing, is you and I are to pay attention to ourselves. This echoes the words of King Solomon found here in the monitor, Proverbs chapter four. It's actually found in Proverbs four, but you can see it on the monitor. Look what he says. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the spring of life. I like the King James says, the wellspring of life. But it's the same thing. Put away from you crooked speech, put away devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. This is what God has called the Christians, those who profess Christ. This is how you are to live your life. And here's the thing. You may say, wait a second, I thought there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. I thought that if we accept Christ, there's no damnation. So what is this verse telling you? What I'm telling you is Jesus is telling you, I should say, is that he's telling you that if you are someone who is purposely causing someone else to sin, If you're creating trespasses, then that is the character and the conviction of someone who is not a Christian. Hence why you should pay attention to yourself. If your relationships are filled with in which you're creating anger and bitterness and resentment in someone else, then you need to see your attitude. You may not be a Christian. That's why Paul says test and examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. For someone who's in a faith would love their neighbors, would love those who would cause them to increase in strength and in goodness. Jesus now moves from addressing those who cause others to sin to those that are sinned against. So now he takes the other side. So there are those who cause sin, cause others to sin. He says there's condemnation to them. They're better off drowning slowly than facing the wrath of God. But then now he turns and he's talking now to those who are being trespassed against. He's addressing those who uh, have been caused others to sin against them. How are we to respond and react when someone does push my buttons, when someone knows how to make me angry, or someone is inconsistent? How do I deal with someone who trespasses against me? Jesus simply says... If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Simple, right? Three steps that you and I are to do. We know we're going to be offended by someone. Jesus says that. Listen, you're going to get offended. There are people that you're going to suffer as temptation. You're going to cause temptation. You're going to have all these things, troubles and trials in life. It's about suffering. These are something that you may face even daily. Maybe even in some parts of your life, it's just an hour, hour, moment by moment thing that you're dealing with. We live in a fallen world. Trespasses against us is the norm, not the exception. If you come home and put your head down after a long day's work and everything else and your toes have not been stepped on, then that's a pretty good day. It'll cause us to stumble. People will make us angry. They will frustrate us. They will hurt us. But Jesus gives us three steps in that simple phrase to follow in dealing with these situations. So first, the Bible calls us, Jesus calls us to rebuke them. This means to warn someone, to set a value upon. And this is something to say, what you're doing is so uh, divisive, is so hurtful, this is something that we must address. This is what we do when we rebuke. It's to assess a penalty upon, to allege as a crimination or a, to chide, to censor, to reprimand, to admonish strongly, to enjoy, enjoin, not enjoy, to enjoin strictly. It's to say this here is something that must be addressed. This is a trespass. We need to rebuke them. Now, we do not do this out of anger or self-righteousness. For in our trespass, we can cause someone else to trespass as we respond negatively or unbiblically. But we are to respond not out of anger or self-righteousness, but out of a love for that person. We are to do so biblically, meaning that we're not seeking retaliation or a pound of flesh, but we're speaking the truth in love. Instead of declaring how offended we are, and we live in a world in which our emotions are such, they're not on our sleeves, man. They're out in front. They're like a shield. And as soon as someone offends you, you know, we're ready to just get mad. We're ready to attack and so on and so forth. But instead of declaring how offended we are and the hurt that they've caused us, we need to rebuke them with the word of God. We need to correct their behavior. You have heard it said many times from this pulpit that Scriptures are profitable for reproof and correction. They do not need to hear or feel our emotional outbursts, but the full weight of Scripture being driven deeply into the hearts by the Holy Spirit. Too often we allow our emotions and our feelings to dictate. And all we do is then we then turn around and we attack them and it just brings it into an unloving, unkind situation. Secondly, now this is more implied. But we are to be patient. What I mean by that is many times we demand full payment. That's what anger is, by the way. When you're, when you're anger, that, that's saying that's a debt that says you owe me and you need to repay it. Scripture, though, calls us to be patient with the, while the Holy Spirit and the word of God works in their hearts. Paul instructs the Christians in Rome to be patient in tribulation, which includes those who trespass against us. And what we're to do is we're to rebuke them, share with them the word of God. We are to pray for them. And then we are to be patient. Wait patiently for what? Waiting for their repentance. To repent conveys the idea of changing any or all the elements comprising of one's life, our attitudes, our thoughts, our behaviors, Concerning the demands of God for right living. God calls all sinners to repentance. And it's to understand that we have offended God. We have failed to measure up to his commands and we need to recognize our sin. That's what it means to to repent. And this is not a worldly grief if you and I have spoken many times about that feels sorry for the consequences of one's sin. But it's a godly sorrow that understands that any trespass against others is at first a sin against the holy God. That's why David would write in his confession, after committing adultery with Bathsheba, and then orchestrating her husband's death. He writes this, as you see here on the monitor in Psalms, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. That's you and I. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now you might say, wait a second, didn't he, didn't he sin against Uriah? Didn't he sin against Bathsheba? Did he not sin against Joab by making Joab, forcing him to put Uriah where he, a place where he could be killed? Yes. But the sin actually is against God and his holy word. And so you and I need to recognize that. And once that offender repents, we need to call, we are then called to the third step. That's forgiving them. In this, we do not have a choice. Is it difficult? Yes. Is it impossible? No. The reason that you and I are to forgive is because Christ has forgiven us. So you see that what we're seeing here is that we are trespassed against. The Bible then calls us then to rebuke them in love then we're to wait patiently and then when they respond in repentance we are called to simply forgive them in romans chapter 12 verse 14 paul writes bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse them in Colossians chapter 3 he says put on then as god's chosen ones Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another because of a trespass, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You and I have no choice. We are called to forgive. And again, the sign of someone who truly is a child of God is they are quick to forgive. In his prayer that he taught us, he warned us here. I don't know if this one's on the screen or not. It's not for you. For for if you forgive others, their trespasses, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. It's a sign. It's a genuine mark of those who are Christians. And and here's the struggle, because there are many marriages and families and others who are struggling with each other who have not forgiven someone else. As those who have received the ultimate gifts of forgiveness, grace, and mercy. We must be quick to grant to others forgiveness, grace, and mercy. Listen to this. What makes you think that you have the authority and the power and the right to hold on to something which God has already forgiven? If they have repented, then who are you and I are to hold on to that debt when Jesus says it is finished? If he has forgiven your offender, then who are you to harbor resentment? Who are you to resist their heartfelt ask of repentance? If you do so, if you refuse to forgive, you now are the offender, you now are the trespasser. Jesus goes on to state in verse 4 that there's no limit to when and how much we are to offer forgiveness. You say, well, then how often? He says, if he sins against you seven times in that day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So the question is, what does it mean to forgive? Because all of us have different, different definitions in the way in which we forgive. Does it mean I need also to forget? Does it mean that our our relationship is restored? What, What does it mean? What does it look like to forgive? Well, forgiving just simply means releasing one from a debt. It's canceling out any record of wrong. One of my favorite passages is found in Colossians 2. I've asked you many times to underline this, highlight this in the Bible, verses 13 through 15, when we see what Jesus has done for us. It says, those who were dead in your trespasses and in the Son circumcision of your flesh, it says, God has made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses against God by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. It is gone. It is reconciled on with all of its legal demands. There is nothing else that God demands from us this he set aside the legal demands nailing it to the cross and not only that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing them in in him in other words when satan comes and says boy look what channing is doing look what brandon is doing look what landon is doing look at all these things that they're doing god says it is under the blood i see nothing but the righteousness of christ but how often Have someone trespassed against us? They they said that they are sorry. And we forgive them, but yet we bring it up the next time we fight. We continually remember it. It's a videotape that constantly plays and replete in our mind, waiting for them to do it again. What forgiveness means, it means that we are to no longer hold on any bitterness, resentment, or hurt. Our heart no longer is a harbor of bitterness, anger, resentment. It's to view the matter as closed. The psalmist tells us that God separates our sins, our trespasses against him, as far as the east from the west. And obviously you can take a map, and you see that those two never come together again. It says that he casts it in the deepest sea. And there is no fishing, there is no pulling it out. There is no bringing it up again. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen? And so that's how God has called us to forgive. There's no fishing them out, no replaying them, not holding on to a grudge. Greg, or George Sanders, excuse me, a biblical counselor, he points out there's several questions that arise from this passion. I think he, I agree with them. And I, I put them up here so you can just see them. The first question someone may say But does our sense of justice needs to be satisfied first? In other words, should I forgive them? Should should not there be a pound of flesh? This is usually how we think, right? What about retaliation? Should not they have to pay something? Are we letting them off easy by forgiving them? Well, the Bible tells us no. We do not have to have a sense of justice fulfilled. When they come and ask for forgiveness, that's why he says, You are to do it seven times. You think, Well, there's no way he means it the seventh time. He tells us that we are to forgive them, right? We're to forget it. Why? Because we are not to search for justice. Why? Because vengeance belongs to whom? God. He will repay. So if you and your spouse are fighting, if you and your children are struggling, if you and your bosses are going to head-to-head, or you and your neighbor are struggling over some type of property issue, you're not to seek justice in that regard. You're not to seek some type of satisfaction. You're to forgive. Second question there is, should we forgive unconditionally in every case? And this is one I struggle with. But I'd have to go back and say, well, it depends, one, on the trespasses, It also depends if they repent. Remember, there's a qualifier. You forgive only if what? They repent. By the way, Jesus only forgives our sin. God only forgives our sins if we repent. And so we need to understand that there are some times that we may hold back forgiveness until they repent because that shows them that there is a value upon what you did. What you did was harmful. It was hurtful. I like uh, Landon gave us a term earlier. It increased sin in my own hearts. That itself is a trespass, a snare. To entice someone else to increase their own sin and lack of faith. And so you and I sometimes may need to ask, but here's the thing. Is that doesn't mean then that we treat them as an enemy. That's not what God is calling us to do. We need to understand that we're still not to harbor anger, bitterness, and resentment, even if we are not giving some type of <coughs> official forgiveness. We need to understand that. So many times, while they have not yet asked forgiveness, they have not yet repented of their sin, so I'm just going to hold this against them. The Bible says that's not a Christian. Some of you are harboring some very, very ugly boats in your harbor. You've got some uh, icebergs that are hiding underneath the, the, the water as people come in. You need to get rid of those. Then the third question, he says, what's the difference between reconciliation and forgiveness? Well, I'm just going to simply say it's the re- restoration of a relationship. What's the, what's the whole deal? Why, why is God calling us to rebuke, calling us to be patient, calling them to repent, and then calling us to forgive them, even if they continually do it, so that a re- relationship may be restored? answer these questions. My time is almost done. I'm going to give here uh, to an end here. As we look at Genesis 45, you can turn there quickly. I'm not going to read it all as I was going to. But you and I know this story. It's Joseph. He's hated by his 11 brothers or 10 brothers. They seek to kill him. So they find him. They, They imprison him. Instead of killing him, they throw him in a pit and then they say, well, let's sell him into slavery. They sell him into slavery for years. You know the story. Joseph's life is ups and downs, right? Goes to Pharaoh's house, or not Pharaoh's house, but he winds up in Potiphar's house. His, his, uh, his master's wife uh, causes him. She tries to ensnare him with the trespass, but he runs away. But instead of being rewarded for his character, he's thrown in prison for several years. Again, he's brought out and brought into Pharaoh eventually, and he winds up bringing um, Uh, 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 bringing them out of famine the story then goes as his 10 brothers now make their way they're 11 now make their way back to Egypt because now they need food Joseph now is in a position where he can retaliate and seek revenge against his brothers but as he's testing them, he begins to see, it doesn't come out and say they repented, but in the story you read that you see that his brothers, especially Judah, starts to see that they are repenting. They are showing remorse for their previous action for their father or for, uh, for their, to their brother. And this is the time when they finally come to him and we see in chapter 45, verse 1, that Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He says, make everything go away from him. He wept, and in verse 3, he says, I am Joseph. It is, my, is my father still alive? They could not speak, for they were dismayed. But look at verse 4. Here's the forgiveness. As he looks at his brothers and says, Come near to me, please. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph had the power to retaliate against his brothers. He could have sought revenge, but instead he sought reconciliation. That's the goal of all relationship. And again, let me give you this. Your relationship is more important than any of the problems you are facing in life. Those are trial designed by God to strengthen your character and draw you to God, but at the same time it's Satan is trying to draw you away from God and destroy your character. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy who you are, your reputation. He wants to destroy all everything about you. You and I need to remember that our enemy is not our spouse, our children, or others. It is Satan. That is what Christ brought us. or bought us through his active and passive obedience. He bought us reconciliation with God. You and I now have peace with God. We have trespassed against him. He has rebuked us. He was patient, causing us to, through his kindness to come to repentance. And then he has forgiven us. We now have peace. Because of that, Paul calls believers to live in harmony with one another. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There will be people in your life that will know how to push your buttons, and they're pulling out their remote control all the time. But we need to recognize that even when we have identified someone as an enemy, as someone who who wants to cause us harm, We are to forgive them in our hearts. We're not to harbor that bitterness. Too many marriages, families, and communities are being ripped apart due to unforgiveness and unrepentant hearts. We are too infatuated with our own hurts and emotional pain that we neglect the most important things in life. And instead of seeking reconciliation, repentance, and restoration and repair of relationships, we seek out retaliation and revenge. May God have mercy on our souls. Forgiveness is a conscience decision. It's not based on your feelings of self-justification or self-satisfaction. Dissensions are going to happen in any collection or group of people, even believers. Some of you this morning are guilty of harboring resentment, bitterness, anger, retaliation, or revenge in your heart. Please hear the words and the warnings of Christ. There's some of you that are enticing and putting a snare in your marriage and in your family and in your communities at work. Pay attention to yourself. Seek the good of your marriage, the good of your family, and of your community. Let us not or let us forgive as God has forgiven us. In closing, Ephesians chapter 4, 31 through 32, we shared this with the children. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. It cannot reside in our hearts. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Amen? Would you do so this morning? Let us be a safe harbor for our families, for our marriages, for people. Neither giving offense or taking offense. There every head, head bowed and every eye closed as Randy comes up, pastor's prayer before we take communion, I just want you to pause for a moment and consider the ways in which you have been someone who has caused offense or one who is holding on to an offense. And would you pray and ask the Holy Spirit, how are you to respond? Some of you need to confess and repent. Some of you need to rebuke and receive that rebuke. And some just need to be patient. Many of us need to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. Whatever it is, would you pray that the Holy Spirit may come in your work or your heart this week and continue working? would you respond to the Word of God and the work of the Spirit? Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message.